You're listening to Spice Radio, 1200 AM, and we are speaking to Margareta Dovgal, Managing Director at Resource Work Society. This week's topic is an update from the BC Natural Resources Forum in Prince George. Margareta, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Wonderful to be here, my Karen. Good morning. Now, get us up to speed on what's happening in Prince George this week and what you're learning. I'm attending the BC Natural Resources Forum for the third or fourth time, and uh, the event itself is actually celebrating its 20th anniversary, and since coming onto the scene in the early 2000s, the forum has become a gathering place for people in our province's resource industries, and uh, lots of folks come from Alberta, Saskatchewan, and the rest of the country, too. Uh, I'm seeing a huge trend. Uh, this is uh, represented across the sector and very much present in this year's agenda of Indigenous content, uh, lots and lots of discussion about partnerships, uh, development of natural resources in collaboration with Indigenous communities. Uh, in fact, my own event, the Indigenous Partnership Success Showcase, which is coming back June 1st and 2nd to Vancouver, uh, is a prime example of this massive shift that's taking place. I'm also seeing that government continues to be plugged in to the interests and needs of the province's most productive sectors, uh, which include mining, forestry, and oil and gas. Uh, and speaking to an industry audience, uh, we hear nuance and specifics that all, don't always make it out to what politicians tell the public as a whole. Uh, politics, as always, challenges uh, their ability to do that somewhat, and uh, there continues to be a lot of debate in society over the right path for Canada's economic future. And I think that building consensus now is more important than ever. And if governments can agree that the sector is important and valuable, they do, um, they must necessarily expend their political capital to boost public confidence in these sectors that they understand our fiscal well-being relies on, uh, even if they face pressure from minority opponents. Uh, Failing that, those really loud minority voices can actually dominate the whole arena of public opinion. Uh, Even when the status quo, uh, the systems that we have in place, they reflect the widespread, deeply entrenched social acceptance for the role of innovative, sustainable resource industries in Canada, uh, both in the present and in the future economy. Uh, Also hearing a lot about forestry, lots of stuff about fiber supply challenges, no closures that have been hitting. So it's a really interesting time, and I'm glad we're here gathering. I heard you also moderated moderated a panel on liquefied natural gas yesterday. How did that go? Well, I'd like to say that I covered a lot of ground. I got to chat on stage with the CEOs of the major LNG Canada Coastal GasLink Joint Venture Project, which represents the single greatest private sector investment in Canadian history. And originally, I think the total cost was slated for about $40 billion. But if I'm not wrong, the pandemic disruption, which you know lengthened the construction schedule, has actually grown that initial figure somewhat. Uh, I should be able to share the recording soon on my social media channels, but in the meantime, I'd love to share some key points that emerged during the fireside chat yesterday. Uh, one piece that uh, most people might not realize is that the in-operation dates are actually a little bit different for the two projects. Uh, Coastal GasLink, uh, the, the pipeline that will carry from the upstream uh, to Kitimat, the, the, the gas that will eventually be liquefied, uh, is expected to <clears throat> you know, run its uh, first course in 2024. Uh, to LNG Canada uh, might be a little bit later, around 2025, um, but we're going to be shipping liquefied natural gas to Asian markets very, very soon. We also heard from Jason Klein, the CEO of LNG Canada, last week about um, some challenges that they're having securing the hydroelectric capacity to enable them to fully electrify the second phase of the project that they have planned. The first phase, as planned, will continue to be fully electrified, which really reduces the emissions intensity and 
uh, carbon emissions footprint of uh, the gas that they are producing. Um, but there's hopefully more news to come, more efforts uh, to pursue in collaboration with uh, provincial and even federal governments on that file. Uh, we heard a lot about this sort of continuum from localized opportunities, uh, especially in the communities where construction is taking place and where there's sizable uh, operational uh, job creation benefits for local communities through to regional, provincial, and national benefits. It really boosts our economy to have something like this up and running. And then, of course, the international impacts. We spoke a lot about the uh, drive to reduce uh, burning of coal and LNG, particularly Canadian LNG, is a really key part of that. Ultimately, we all agreed that uh, Canada is on the path to being established as a major LNG exporter. And our competitive advantage is actually key to this. We have enviable proximity to Asian markets. And provided that that electrification capacity is also available, we produce the lowest CO2-intensity LNG on the planet. And as we saw from the recent visits of the Japanese Prime Minister, German Chancellor, the world needs and wants our LNG. There is an undeniable business case. And as I heard from Evan Wurzba, the CEO of Coastal GasLink, the Japanese Prime Minister specifically mentioned their project by name as being an example of the kinds that they need to meet their energy goals. Um, but, you know, this doesn't stop with uh, LNG Canada. Uh, Cedar LNG, which is uh, owned and planned by the Hydro Nation in Kitimat, will also benefit from uh, uh, natural gas that is being carried by the Coastal GasLink pipeline. Wood Fiber LNG in Squamish is another exciting project that's uh, in the process of, uh, of being uh, developed. Um, Xylism's LNG, the Niska Nation, just a little bit north of Kitimat, uh, is also being developed right now, uh, and new pipeline may be needed to feed that. So there's uh, a time of change and excitement in the BC LNG landscape. Now, Margaret, you're meeting lots of people from across the province and even elsewhere in Canada this week. What have been the highlights? Well, I'd really say that it emphasizes the strong personal relationships that are needed for a healthy and thriving sector. It's a community, uh, whether you work in forestry or you work in natural gas or you're working in mining. Um, there's a lot of shared concerns and interests, and people will often move uh, through the sector in the course of their career. And uh, that's always really nice to, you know, just catch up with people that I know and like and uh, to also meet new ones. Um, I also got to participate in a small roundtable with the Parliamentary Secretary for Natural Resources federally, Julie DeBruz, and she was in town to give some remarks on behalf of her minister, Jonathan Wilkinson. And we spoke about jobs and innovation. The federal government is tabling its sustainable jobs legislation. Uh, it's you know, colloquially been referred to as the Just Transition Plan, and uh, they're looking for some inputs. And we spoke a lot about labor market data and statistics. There's some notable gaps in British Columbia on that file. Used to be produced regularly, and then last couple of years, there's been a bit of a decline in that. Um, they really emphasized the value need for their approach to this legislation to be people-focused. And one piece that I really brought to the conversation, and I'm going to continue to tell anyone who will listen, is that uh, it's not just a one-for-one one question. There are jobs that are going to uh, transform within resource industries uh, as a result of energy transition and you know shift to environmentally friendly policies of world over. Um, and there's also going to be very likely some jobs that aren't able to exist in their current form. But uh, the responsibility of government right now is to ensure not only that people who have a change that is facing their job security have something to land in, um, you know, that's 
upskilling, that's access to education, that's continuous learning, as the uh, folks from the post-secondary sector told us yesterday. Um, but it's also responsibility of government to ensure that the labor productivity and the impacts from these jobs are maintained. They're key to our economy. And uh, if your oil and gas worker um, isn't able to stay in a transformed sector because they don't have the skills, um, having them go to a sector where uh, every hour that they work produces half as much value uh, isn't actually the solution that we want. We want to retain that value creation. That's the only way we stay competitive. I'm also hearing a lot of really interesting and funny anecdotes Uh, Someone in the community that won't be named told me uh, an interesting story about meeting a pipeline protester who had rolled into town where a pipeline expansion was occurring, and they got into a heated debate uh, with this individual about pipelines. And um, the protester pointed to the ground demanding, you know, would you be okay with a pipeline here? And uh, the person that uh, I was chatting with, uh, who's a local, started laughing hysterically, saying that the nice green stretch that they were standing on was actually already home to a pipeline under the ground as evidenced by the yellow flags that they could see at regular intervals. And the protester was gobsmacked, had nothing to say. Uh, And I think the story, you know, I I imagine it's true. The person seemed pretty credible. Um, It's demonstrative of sometimes the lack of context that people have going into these conversations. Ultimately, all I can say is know your gripe. Poorly substantiated opposition benefits no one, and it actually deteriorates the integrity of the public discussion as a whole. Mm. And now, lastly, the long-awaited announcement about the framework agreement between the province and the Blueberry River First Nations was finally made yesterday. What did you think of it? Well, just to understand uh, what this means, let's uh, just touch on how we got here. Um, There was a major decision in 2021 in B.C. Supreme Court that found that the Blueberry River First Nations' rights to use the land for traditional purposes, which had been guaranteed under Treaty 8 when it was signed historically, had actually been compromised by the combined cumulative effects of industrial development in the area. And uh, the BC government chose not to appeal this. They could have. Uh, as the Premier David Eby explained uh, to attendees uh, just a couple of days ago, it would have contradicted the province's commitment to moving away from the adversarial approach, uh, contesting First Nations communities over their rights. Uh, plus, thinking pragmatically, an appeal might have been tied up in preemptive injunctions against permitting, um, you know, potentially longer delays than uh, what uh, the province is uh, working to develop right now, while the case, uh, you know, would have wound through the lengthy, lengthy court process, you know, many, many years, potentially. So negotiating rather than litigating, as the Premier put it, um, was the approach. It did suspend new permitting for a period that has affected investment. And really what I'm hoping for as an ultimate outcome here is increased certainty in the upstream production, um, particularly in oil and gas, because that is the sector that has been most affected. Uh, You know, for context, uh, natural gas... uh, uh, production relies on steady, continuous drilling and construction. Um, that's just how the business model and the economics work. And uh, your ability to extract value from an existing asset uh, depends on the type of well and its unique geophysical characteristics. Uh, but the pressure in the well, which you need to counteract the force of gravity, actually drops off after a certain point. Um, so you might be able to get to the sort of end of the lifetime of a well, but you need to keep drilling if you want to make use of your existing infrastructure uh, for all the other parts of, of developing this resource. Um, ultimately, coming out of the agreement, some limits are going to be placed on energy development in the region, but uh, my hope are ultimately that these are communicated clearly. Um, and 
this is from a position of partnership and meaningful engagement between industry and indigenous communities. Also, some changes uh, coming down on old-growth forests in the area, watershed management, uh, major investments coming in ecosystem restoration so the nations can really utilize the natural abundance that they have in the area. Uh, there was a revenue-sharing component to it, and also just land-use planning as a whole. I'm really looking forward to more announcements, uh, but, you know, I, even though there are some key questions firmed up, uh, like the last couple of announcements on this file, there's still some questions. Uh, so I'm looking forward to having those addressed and hearing about uh, what this means for other Treaty 8 nations uh, whose rights are also uh, implicated in uh, that agreement. And I understand negotiations are still ongoing. Margareta, as always, we appreciate the update. You take care. Have a great weekend. You too.